0: The final week of Jesus' ministry is so jam-packed in Scripture, just so much there. And one of the things that stands out for me is this moment, we're not going to look specifically at this, but I want to launch from this, when he is speaking to his disciples in in the upper room, and he has this massive dialogue. It takes chapters of John's Gospel for John to kind of dictate, and write down all the things that he said, and I'm sure that there was even more beyond that. But... He said these words, he started to speak to them about being plugged into him. And he started to talk in this language about being a vine. I am am the vine, you are the branches. And he says these words, he says, abide in me. Now, given what was about to happen, because I don't know about you, but when I think about those words, abide in me, I usually, for some bizarre reason, I usually take them out of the context in which they were spoken. And I think about, you know, what is it to abide in the Lord? well, it's peace and it's calm and it's serene and it's nice and it's, you know, it's just, it it just sounds like such a a peaceful, pleasant, shalom kind of thing, yeah? But Jesus is speaking these words to them right before the most chaotic thing that would ever happen, not just in his life, but in theirs. And he's not only speaking it to them right then, he's also speaking it after a whole lot of chaotic things have just happened as well. And so he's 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 really inviting them into this space, into this moment in time where he's saying, um, you don't know what's about to happen. I know what's about to happen, but I want for you to abide in me. And that doesn't mean just when things are good and just when things are serene and just when things are peaceful, but also in the hard times and also in the chaotic times. I actually want for you to find who I am and plug yourself into that because there will be a time when I am no longer around you in person, but I want for you to understand what it is to be plugged in regardless. Yeah? And so he he uses these words, abide in me. Now, I just find it extraordinary that he would say it in that moment in time. And that just stands out for me, I think, in Easter week. But what I want for us to do is we're going to jump back to the beginning of Easter week. It's around about a week before Uh, the Passover before Jesus then was crucified. And we're going to have a look at the story of Mary of Bethany. It's found in John chapter 12. But basically what's happened is Jesus has come from Jericho. He's travelled from Jericho and this is his final travel to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows what he's going there for. He's headed, Luke says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so he knows where he's going. He knows that this is the final destination of his journey before his crucifixion. And so he, he leaves from Jericho, which is a, a bit of a way from Jerusalem. And, and he heads toward Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem is his final destination. But on the way to Jerusalem, he comes to a place called Bethany. And Bethany is about two miles from the temple in Jerusalem, quite close. To Jerusalem. If you can imagine what you've seen of where the temple is in Israel in Jerusalem there or if you've ever been you basically look up the Mount of Olives which is a very very long sloping kind of not really a mountain more like a hill and if you go right over the back side of it and down a little bit that's where Bethany is. It's only two miles walk to the temple so pretty close and so Jesus finds himself on his way to Jerusalem, he stops at Bethany, to have dinner and actually stay with his friends, Lazarus, Martha and Mary, that's where they live. So Jesus knows that in this destination, he's going to have an audience, right? Because he raised Lazarus to life, not too long beforehand. So he's turned up there and he's known. And all of the people of the town, all of the people of that that village and that area would have known this story. There was this man, Lazarus, he was dead, You know, we we understood that he was dead. We were part of the the mourning process. And then Jesus comes four days later and he raises this guy to life. And so people had this kind of expectation. There was this buzz, you know, Jesus is coming back. You know, he's coming to this place and he's going to come and he's going to have dinner on this first night that he's there. And there's sort of this welcome back ceremony and wow, how cool. And so he would have been flooded with well wishes and interested people and what might happen now, like if he could raise this guy uh, from the dead, before then what might happen today and so there's this kind of buzz and this anticipation and then Jesus is going to plant himself at this house and for the rest of the week he's going to go into Jerusalem and back up to Bethany to stay the night and then into Jerusalem and then back up to Bethany to stay the night and that's pretty much how he lives out the last week before his crucifixion. So we find ourselves in John chapter 12 verse 1. And it says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honour, Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12 ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So you can imagine this scene, right? You've got these people. You've got the people who were invited. They're sort of reclining at the table here. Um, You've got Lazarus. Incidentally, I find this fascinating with Lazarus. He's a witness in Scripture just simply because of what Jesus did, but he never speaks a word. In Scripture, there is no word that ever came out of the mouth of Lazarus' mouth. Awesome, eh? His life is a witness, He doesn't actually have to say anything, he just has to be there and he's a witness. So here he is, it's in his house and you've got all of this kind of expectation, the people who were invited, the people who were hanging around outside who wanted to be a part of it and then this woman Mary, uh, she comes and she starts to like do something really kind of awkward. Now in some ways it's awkward and in some ways it's not awkward and I'll explain that. In that culture at that time, because of dust and and walking and feet and all of that kind of dirty feet and all that kind of stuff, it was very common, in fact it was expected, that when you went to somebody's house as a guest, that as you walked in the door there would be a servant, the servant would come and wash the grime off your feet. That was pretty normal, it was pretty expected, and it would be the job of the lowliest servant to do so. If you're a really highly honoured guest, they might even get some perfume and dab it, just dab it on your head just to make you smell sweet. The whole idea was that you'd come in, you'd feel refreshed. The dust and the dirt of the day would be washed off. You'd be able to recline at the table. They had low kind of to the ground tables and they'd recline and sort of have their feet closer to people's heads than what we currently do, the way that we slide our feet under the tables. And so you'd want for people to have washed feet and just to feel refreshed and ready to be in each other's presence and enjoy each other's company. So it was was not unusual for feet to be touched or to be washed, and far less unusual than it would be in our culture. You know when people do these, um, you guys might have, so I probably shouldn't, I I won't mock, but (laughs) I don't know. But you know how when people do these feet washing ceremonies sometimes, and and it's so awkward for us, right? Because we're just not used to people touching our feet, and in fact, we're so used to wearing shoes and having our feet sort of protected from the elements that some of us have feet that can't be touched without us jumping through, <laughs> jumping out of our skin. I, my, you can't touch my feet. And I remember actually my sisters and mum saying we're going to go and get a manicure and pedicure. And I said, I'll get a manicure, but I won't get a pedicure. And then I sat there after my manicure watching the three of them as they were going, (laughs) I'm going, that's just not, that's totally stressful. I just couldn't do it. You know, so we're just not used to having our feet touched. So in that sense, it was not unusual for them. Their feet were often touched. They were handled, they were washed by somebody. But to have a woman, unmarried woman, come up to an unmarried man Kneel before him, take her hair out, which was really, really not done in that culture. Take her hair out to pour perfume, to rub and wash and, and and like, you know, handle, fondle his feet with her hair was very awkward and highly unexpected. And so it's like she's choosing here to do something that kind of correlates with what a servant would do. But she said, "No, I'm, I'm actually going to ramp up the servant's duty, and I'm going to ramp it up to a thousand. And I'm going to really do a job here. You know, it's not going to be the basic thing of just wash his feet and let him feel refreshed. But I am going to honor him in any way I can in this process. And so she really puts herself out there. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. There's a lot of um, uh, situations in scripture that I think to myself, I would love to be a, have been a fly on the wall and see what that was like. This is one of those." Because I just reckon it would have been super awkward. You know, what do you do as one of the other guests? Like what's going on, right, in your head? You're just, you're there and you're going, ah. You know, like if I saw a married couple do this, I would go, I might just, you know. It's just, it's, it's so awkward. And yet the thing that I find really fascinating about it um, is that Jesus wasn't embarrassed. He was chuffed. He was super excited about this. His response was just one of affection and love and, yeah, bring it on. This is awesome. This is totally what she should be doing. Mark actually describes it uh, in his gospel, Mark chapter 14, verse 6. He describes it like this. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. Not in memory of me, in memory of her. Like he is going, she's honoured me with this, but I'm actually going to honour her and show you that for the rest of time, she will be remembered for this act. That's how much I think it's awesome. That's how beautiful it is. That's how much I want to honour her for this. That's how much affection I want to lavish on her because of the way that she ministered to me in this moment. There's not a hint of awkwardness. There's not a hint of embarrassment. There's not a hint of this is inappropriate. There's absolute acceptance and he sees this offering that she's made as being right and good and true and i love that this she'll be remembered for this for all time and she'll be honored because of it it's awesome and i think the thing that i wanted to look at about mary and to try and i guess find out where is this zone what is it in the heart of somebody that would put themselves out there to that degree and then be honored so profoundly by the lord as she'd put herself out there and I reckon there's a key. I actually think the thing with Mary is she fully understood her identity. She knew who she was. You see, you're not going to go and do something that's awkward and embarrassing and could actually have negative ramifications that didn't, but you're not going to go and put yourself out there unless you are absolutely 100% assured of who you are. Because the reality is that for us as humans, we understand something very deeply. Intimidation is knocking at our door all the time, right? It takes very little to intimidate us and make us timid, which is where the word comes from, right? Intimidation makes us timid. And so we hold ourselves back and we go, oh, I I am thinking of this amazing thing that I want to do, but this might happen, but that might happen, so I'll hold myself back. But when you know who you are, when you have a strength in your identity – you're more inclined to go, it actually doesn't matter what the fallout is because I'm doing this out of confidence of who I am, right? And if you were to go to Mary, I believe, and say to her, so what's your identity? Who are you? She'd respond, I believe, like this. She'd say, well, I'm the Lord's servant. That's who I am. You want to know the essence of everything that drives me? I'm the Lord's servant. And so I've taken the place of a servant here and I've ramped it up in honour and worship of my Lord. So I want to have a look at it from that perspective this morning. I am the Lord's servant, therefore. I am the Lord's servant, therefore. The first one is this. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I worship unashamed. This act was one of pure adoration. Absolute affection. It was extravagant and it was public. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I worship unashamed. She took down her hair she gave him everything that she had. She knew that Jewish women shouldn't do this publicly, but she wanted to do it as a, a, an extravagant act of worship toward her Lord. For her, she was going, it doesn't actually matter to me what you think. It only matters to me that he understands how I feel about him and how much I want to honour him. And so she was quite happy to do that publicly. And so here she is in this, this moment in time, pouring out her adoration in an undignified way. And, you know, it reminds me actually of the way that King David did that, you know, when he danced before the Ark of the Lord. And he said, I'll be more undignified than this, you know, I want to dance before the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. And I'm going to do it publicly and I'm going to do it boldly. And it doesn't matter whether I look like an idiot because I really don't care what you think. I only care what he thinks. And what I want for him to understand is that I am giving everything in worship. I am going to be extravagant with my worship. I'm going to do everything that I can to get him to see the overflow of my heart through worship. I'm unashamed about this. And the thing that I think for us, you know, we we often, it's too easy for us to downplay this into a church setting and go, okay, so let's just be really extravagant in our worship before the Lord in our church services where it's safe. But I think what we can tend to do is we can put it within these walls, put our worship within these walls, and actually not be publicly worshipping the Lord at all, you know, we can go out into our lives, into our communities, and into our workplaces, into everywhere else that we are in our life, and be completely ashamed and yet extravagant in our worship when we're around people who are safe. You know, and this is a challenge for me. I, I'm going, where is it in my life that I'm willing to actually put my adoration of Jesus on the line? You know, to be overt to be unashamed in my worship of the Lord, to be unashamed in the way that I declare my adoration for him and my affection for him. You know? We can go into our, our communities and into our workplaces and we can say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I believe in Jesus or I'm a Christian or however it is that you want to phrase it and, and then people go, really? You're one of those people? And then we go, oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, well, I, I did a few things and I, I hung out with a few people. Oh, yeah, where was that? Oh, was it was at church. You know? When was the last time that you had a conversation with somebody and you were prepared even with a mocking look on their face to say to them, yeah, yeah, I worship the Jesus. I love him. I adore him. Can I tell you? I have conversations with him every single day. He speaks to me. I speak to him. It's so good. He is the best thing. He is the most amazing person. He's my Lord. He's my saviour. I love him. I've given my life to him. And I will die my final breath saying how wonderful he is. And I'm not ashamed of that. Man, you should know him too. Like if you think that I'm a weirdo, it's just because you don't understand. You know? I love him. I adore him. I have so much affection for him. I wish you understood. You know, where's our our adoration, our public unashamed worship of the Lord? I am the Lord's servant, therefore I worship unashamed. Second thing is this. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I serve. Duh. (laughs) That's what servants do, right? (laughs) It's the very obvious thing that servants do. But what I love about Mary in this story in this moment, is that it's almost like she's gone, oh, the lowliest servant in the house gets to wash his feet. I don't want them to have that opportunity. I want to do it. You know, she looks at, she looks at the lowliest job, the worst job, the job that's given to the lowliest person, the job that has the least glory. And she says, give me that. I want to engage in that. I want to do that job. I want to serve him in any way that I can. If there's a possibility of me getting close to him by serving him and doing something for him, then I want to be the person that does it. Let me at it. And so she takes this really lowly task and then she ramps it up into an act of worship. And what's fascinating to me is that uh, John actually says in his – in his text here, he says Martha served. He Martha served, but Martha did what was expected, right? Martha served. In other words, Martha got the food and she served the guests as a normal Jewish woman would be expected to do in any normal any normal evening if they had guests at their house. She was doing the normal service. Mary goes, I'm gonna find the job no one wants, and I'm gonna do that. And that's gonna be my opportunity. To honor him and to worship him, she chose the lowliest of chores, and she made it worthy of the Son of God. You know, I think um, so often we think about serving the Lord, and we we often even give um, Christian ministry that title. Oh, what do you do with your with your? Oh, well, I'm a servant of the Lord, and we make it sound like it's this kind of you know glorious thing, which it is. Don't get me wrong. But it's usually the glory ones, that, the glory tasks and the glory chores and the jo- glory jobs that we want. The ones that are interesting or fun or give us a little bit of notoriety or a name for ourselves. But clean the toilets, eh, someone else can do that. <laughs> and then I think here, yeah, Mary's gone, no, I actually want the worst of the jobs, and then I'm going to make it worthy of the Lord wow, that's an attitude, right? It's all in the attitude. As far as she's concerned, she's going, this is how I honour him. And so it doesn't matter how small the job is and it doesn't matter how lowly the job is, I get to serve him. I'm not doing it for anyone else and I'm not doing it for my own name, even though she gets a name for it. I'm doing it for him. I'm the Lord's servant, therefore I serve. I'm the Lord's servant, therefore I honour him with my possessions. So the perfume... That she used, Judas tells us because he was the one who knew <laughs> how much she was wasting, according to him. The, per- the perfume that she used was equivalent to a year's wages. The Gospels tell us that it was worth 300 denarii, and a denarii was worth around about a day's wages. You get about a, a denarii for a day. Once you factor in the Sabbaths for the year, it's around about a year's wages. And, uh, and, and so she's like, she's really putting it out there. So I went for a little bit of a search just to have a look and see, let's have a look at the equivalent, you know, just for interest's sake. Minimum wage, full time at the moment, that's around about $40,000. Imagine that, 40 grand with a perfume, dropped at his feet. Now, this here is my scent, Coco Chanel, for anybody who might like to buy me a birthday present later on in the year so that's my that's my little bottle of perfume there now it's around about a quarter gone and that perfume is two to three years old I am extremely stingy So I buy the good stuff, I'll tell you, it is expensive, it's not $40,000 worth, I can tell you that, but it is expensive, but I buy the good stuff, but I am so stingy with it, I just, I am, it's really super, super stingy, because I go, I'm going to buy expensive perfume, but then I'm going to wear it very sparingly, because I want it to last, so I can have a bottle of Coco Chanel like this last 10 years, (laughs) no problem whatsoever, Um, apart from now that my daughter wants to start wearing it too, so it might start to go a little bit down. Anyway. Mary would have dropped 160 of these on Jesus' feet that day. Wow. I'm making this last 10 years. She's at his feet, and she goes, "Here it all is." She just pours it out. And what's fascinating to me is that a year's wages in Bethany was a place of poverty, right? So a year's wages, she comes along and she goes, I want to be extravagant about my worship. I'm just going to pour it out over your feet. I'm going to show you how absolutely um, enthralled by you I am and how much I worship. She pours it all over his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair and she's saying, I'm giving you everything that I've got. She pours out her possessions. And what I love about it is Jesus doesn't see it as wasteful or frivolous. He doesn't turn to her and go, look, you know, I, I... I appreciate it. I appreciate the affection that you're trying to show me, but the Bible does talk about stewardship of your money, right? He just, it, it's like his whole attitude is yeah, that's a totally natural response for someone who is an adoration of me. That's a totally natural response for someone who adores me and who is devoted to me. And it, it's normal that you would want to choose to do that. And so his response to her is, bring it on, your 160 bottles of Coco Chanel. It's right that it should be on my feet. And I love that. As, As his servant, she is honoring him with her possessions. If you think that generosity is just a virtue on top of our spirituality, I think you may have actually missed the point. Generosity is intrinsically related to how we abide in the Lord. The way that we honor him with our possessions, the way that we come to him with everything that we have, not saying, you know, I have a lot and so I'm going to give a little, but rather that I'm going to come and I'm going to give everything to the Lord and allow him to be Lord of what I have. I am his servant, therefore I honor you with my possessions. She totally showed us that. And it would have been a resounding, loud message to those who were seated at that table how much she offered. I am the Lord's servant. Therefore, I seek out His presence. The three times we actually see Mary three times in uh, in the Gospels, and each of the three times she's at Jesus' feet, she's obsessed by His feet. <laughs> Luke chapter ten is the first time that we see her, and she's at uh, uh, Jesus' is at dinner at her house, and uh, and most of you will know the story. Martha's in the kitchen, and she's calling out, and she's saying, "Lord, send Mary here. Why am I doing all of the work? She's just sitting there." doing nothing. And Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to send her to help you do all of those other things. She's chosen the better thing and it won't be taken from her. And she's just sitting at his feet. She's drinking in everything that he has to offer. She's asking him questions. She's listening to him speak. She's adoring him. And what what this whole picture shows us is that she loves his presence. She just wants to be at his feet. She wants to be hearing from him and understanding his heart and understanding what it is to be intimate with him, knowing the depths of what he's about and where he where he's coming from and what he wants to teach. she loves being in his presence. The second time that we see her is in John chapter 11, four days after her brother Lazarus had died. and Jesus comes, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days um, and he arrives and he calls for Mary and she comes out and she immediately bows down at his feet and you kind of get this image of her just grabbing hold of his feet and sobbing and it's this beautiful moment once again of intimacy of presence of engagement she's she's at his feet she's in a position of worship she wants to be in his presence she wants to understand and both mary and martha ask a very similar question of him you know they say to him If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Essentially, what took you so long? But she's here at his feet and she weeps and she weeps and she weeps. And there's this this sense of a connection between them because of this gravitation toward his presence. Where she wants to be at his feet all the time. She wants to be near him and understand who he is. And it's so powerful and so profound that as she weeps, he begins to weep too. And he's not weeping for Lazarus. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus to life. He's weeping because Mary is brokenhearted. And that that connection between them because she loves his presence and she loves being near him causes a connection between the two of them that means that he empathises with her and he responds to her grief with his own grief. She loves his presence. And then we jump ahead here to John chapter 12 where she's once again at his feet and she's pouring this perfume over his feet. She loves his presence. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I seek out his presence. She loved learning from him. She loved connecting with him. She loved to abide in him. She loved his presence and she loved being affected by his presence. It's like you can imagine Mary being the kind of person who just goes, what's your heart? What's your heart, Lord? I just want to know your heart. She'd be the one who would put her ear up to his chest and go, just let me hear your heart beat. What is it that you have to say today? She loved his presence. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I am tuned in to what he's doing. Now this one I think is really, really closely related to presence. Because it's when you spend time in someone's presence that you actually find out what they're about. There's this really interesting thing that is happening right here. Jesus says, She is anointing my feet for burial. Now, we don't know what Mary knew or how much depth that she understood about what was to come. But there is a sense here in the writing of this that she knew his time was coming to an end. She's actually picked up this ointment, this perfume, and she's actually giving it as anointing for his burial. So she's actually tuned in beyond what anybody else is regarding what's coming. She may not know how it was going to happen, but she knew that it was going to happen. There is a, a real sense that Mary was tuned in to what was happening with Jesus in a way that some of his other disciples may not have been. Now, it's really fascinating because I, I guess, uh, in some ways, when you think about that, it makes sense, right? Uh, after, after someone's been married for a while, you start to. You know, you start to know what they're thinking or what they're doing. Our kids come to us and they say, you know, m- our kids will come to me and say, oh, where's daddy at and what's daddy doing? And even if I don't know the answer to it, I can usually answer the question just simply because we've been connected for that long. You know, you get to just know what the other person thinks, what they're about, what they might be doing. And it's very rare that I would get that question wrong. And it's the same the other way. And it's just, it's just, A symptom, I guess, it's the result of intimacy that you know what's happening with that person. You're tuned in to what's going on. You're tuned into the plans and you're tuned into what's happening with them. She was tuned in. And so for Mary, being in this situation, she was able to engage in that and be a part of the plan of Jesus in ways that others were not able to be because she loved being in his presence. See, abiding in Jesus not only forms us as a follower, but it informs us on what God is doing. In fact, the only way that you can discern what God is doing is by abiding. There's no other way to know. You actually have to come near him and be in his presence and seek after him if you want to find out what he's he's about and what's going on. There's no way for it to happen otherwise. And so she really shows us how to do that. The last one is this. I am the Lord's servant, therefore I regard him as Lord. I regard him as Lord. Mary knew who she was and she knew who he was. She was his servant and he was the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The fascinating thing to me here is even if she knew what was coming, even if she had some inkling that she was preparing him for burial, She wasn't trying to stop it. You don't get any sense that she was going, no, 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 no. You know, Peter would do that, right? Oh, no, 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 you can't. That can't happen to you. (laughs) Mary doesn't. She goes, okay, this is the plan. All right, well, then I'm going to anoint you for that because I'm your servant. You're the Lord. I'm not. I don't get to choose what happens. I don't get to influence what happens. You're the Lord. I'm the servant. Therefore, you say this is happening. I'm going to facilitate that. You say, this is what you're up to. I'm going to be the servant and I'm going to contribute to that. I'm the Lord's servant. Therefore, you are Lord. I am not. That means that I follow. That means you say jump. I say how high. I don't spend my life arguing and trying to figure out different ways and different plans or whatever. I simply place myself as the servant of the Lord. And then I do what he says. Honestly, in this last season, (laughs) I believe that God has been calling us his church to have a fresh revelation of him as Lord and a fresh conviction that he is Lord. It's not about us and our cool little strategies and our fancy little plans. It's not about us and... Corporate ways of doing things because somebody told us about a really good book. (laughs) It's not about political ideologies. It's not about left and right. It's about the Lord. What is the Lord doing? Because we are his servants. What is he up to? Because we are his servants and he calls us to then follow. You are the Lord, I am not. Therefore, you say this and I follow. You are the master, I am the servant. I don't get to choose a different role. I understand that my identity is servant, therefore what you say goes. And that's how I live and that's how I make my decisions. And that's how I, I choose to structure myself And my life, and we're not always going to get it right, none of us do, all the time, but to always be able to come back to that place where we say, oh Lord, you're Lord, I'm not Lord. I can't possibly know the way forward here, I can't possibly know what you're expecting here, I have to come and find out from you, what is it that you're saying, Lord, because I am your servant and I want to follow what you are doing and what you are saying. I am your servant, therefore I regard you as Lord. I think the more wishy-washy we become as God's people around whether God is Lord, whether Jesus is Lord, means that we are open to be grabbed, uh, grabbed hold of by worldly ideals. We're just leaving ourselves open for it because we haven't placed him as Lord. It's like, oh, well, what does this person think about this and what's, what's the most you know up-to-date thinking about this particular issue? And then we get ridiculous things coming into our vernacular like your truth and my truth. Jesus is the truth. There is only one truth. There is the Lord and we serve him and we honour his ways and we do as he says. Because he is the Lord and we are his servants. We're focused on Mary's actions and her heart, but I actually just want to focus just for a moment on Jesus' response. And I love this. He was touched. I love it. He loved her offering. He loved her being near him. He loved her worship. He loved their connection. He accepted her. But not only that, he honoured her and he praised her. She comes to him, get this, she comes to him with affection and he comes back to her with affection. He doesn't just go, oh, yes, oh, thank you, yes, I deserve this. Excellent, yes, completely natural that you would give all of this affection to me, you little peasant, servant person. No, he goes, you've lavished your affection on me, now I'm going to lavish my affection on you. You're going to be honoured for all time because of this. When we come to him in this way, we come to him as his servant, and we say, I want to place you number one, regardless of the cost for me, and I want to worship you extravagantly, and I want to honour you with my possessions, and I want to treat you as Lord, and I am going to be your servant, and I am going to pursue you and spend time in your presence and try and find out what it is that makes you tick so that I can find out everything about you to become closer to you, to become more like you. His response to us is, I want to lavish affection on you because I love you too. It's glorious that we have a God who responds to us that way. So it's, it's it's too easy for us in Easter week to come to the cross and to th- and to just talk about how Jesus died on a cross to forgive us of our sin because really when it comes down to it, he wasn't looking at our sin. He was looking at us. Sin was just in the way. Sin was just this thing that was in the way of us. See, the reality is he is affectionate toward us. And he wanted to get sin out of the way so that he could get to us. How glorious is that? Like, you know, if there's a Lord we want to bow down to, we want it to be one who is going to be affectionate when we show him affection. So I want to ask you today, how's your extravagant, servant-hearted adoration of Jesus going? How's your presence dwelling unashamed commitment to him as Lord? You are Lord, I am not. Therefore, I am your servant. Because I think for each of us, we need to be able to come back to that place and just ask the question, where am I getting this right, Lord? And where do I need to realign with what you're calling me to? Realising that it was the beginning of his final week before crucifixion, I can't help but think where those freshly anointed feet would travel over the next few days. Feet that would be carried down the Mount of Olives by a donkey's colt the next day, very next day after this meal, as he presented himself as the Passover lamb to Jerusalem. A feet that would carry him to the temple, where in a rage he would throw out money changers. Feet that would turn toward Jerusalem as he wept over it because of their lack of belief. Feet that would bend down in service as he washed the feet of his followers, just the same as Mary had anointed his feet at this dinner. Feet that would carry him to Gethsemane, where he would wrestle with God and ask for the cup of suffering to be taken from him. Feet that would carry his beaten body to Golgotha under the weight of his own crossbeam. Feet that would be nailed to a cross to bear the sins of a broken humanity. And feet that would rise up from a cold, dark tomb bringing eternal hope for humanity. Those are the feet she anointed that day. Don't you want to Bow down at those feet too. Don't you want to bow down once again at those feet? I'm going to pray and just offer time, just a a moment for us just to realign ourselves with him as Lord and realign our affections to him as we finish off our time together. But I'm actually going to ask for you to either stand or kneel, you can choose, as we pray. And I'm going to leave space for you to speak to him from your heart, just in the quietness of your heart, and tell him what you might want to say as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have given, what you have done. But we want to thank you today for who you are. You're so good. You're so glorious. There is no one like you. Lord, in the season that we've been through, it's affected each of us in such profoundly different ways. And some, some of us, we've found ourselves in a place of greater depth with you and understanding of who you are. And for some of us, we are dry and we are far from you. And Lord, right now in this moment, we just want to say we adore you. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy to be adored. You're worthy of extravagance. You're worthy for us to be your servants. You are Lord and we are not. And Lord, for each of us here today, we know that there are some areas that we've talked about this morning where where, we're doing well. And there are other areas where we need to reconnect with you. We need to realign with you. And remember who you are and who we are in relation to that so Lord right now as we just spend a few moments just doing business with you I pray that you would hear each of our hearts individually as to where we want to recommit and realign with you